Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. This morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 35. Remember, beloved, these are, they truly are, the very written words of God. Words written for you and written for me. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boandrenes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided... He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, not long ago, I saw a very interesting article that was about the top 10 archaeological discoveries that root the New Testament in history. It was written back in 2017 and included the top 10 archaeological discoveries that root 
the New Testament in actual history. Um, the first one talked about a discovery that came about in 1961 in Israel when they uncovered a Latin inscription on a limestone block dated to between 26 AD and 37 AD. It was found and translated, it reads, to Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Now, for years, obviously, through the New Testament and other extra-biblical sources, we knew about the existence of Pontius Pilate, the New Testament, Josephus, Tacitus, but this was the first archaeological find that actually verified the existence of Pontius Pilate and, according to the Gospels, his affinity for the title prefect. Fascinating. Very interesting. I'll read a little quote about it. The artifact is particularly significant because it is an archaeological find of an authentic first century Roman inscription mentioning the name. In other words, rooting it in history. So, so interesting. In 2004, a, a pipe, uh, a drainage pipe, or it could have been a sewage pipe, was being repaired in Jerusalem when they struck something very hard. And anytime something like that happens, they bring in the Jewish kind of archaeological authorities. And so they began a dig that uncovered the pool of Siloam that's mentioned in John chapter 9 when Jesus heals the man born blind and he applies mud to his eyes and do you remember what he told the man to do? He said, go wash off in the pool of Siloam. Well, for thousands of years, no one had found that pool. People thought maybe this was an embellishment from the New Testament. In 2004, they found the pool. Pretty interesting. 1968. This is incredible. A tomb was found in Jerusalem containing the bones of a man who lived just before the time of Jesus in, 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 a, in a proper tomb. A man's bones were found and the man had been crucified. There was a seven-inch nail going through the heel bone of his left foot and there were still shards of wood on that nail. It had been said for years that a crucified man like Jesus would have never been given a proper burial. And so some viewed that as perhaps uh, Jesus' burial had been embellished until in 1968 they found a tomb where a Jewish man had enjoyed a proper burial and had been crucified. Fascinating. And then there was a discovery in the early 1900s that relates directly to our text today. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus made his home and his base of operations in Capernaum. If you were to look at your Bible map, in the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee was the place named Capernaum. That's where Peter lived and Andrew lived. That was Jesus' base of operation. Okay, look at our text today. Look at Mark 3.20. Jesus has finished his Galilean ministry. 
And then Mark writes in 3.20, Then he went home. Where was his home? His home, his base of operation, was in the home of Peter and Andrew. That's where he based his ministry. That's where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. That was the place where the paralytic had been lowered through the roof so Jesus could heal him. That was the place that Jesus had healed so many and cast out many demons. And in the early 1900s, they found that home. You can see it today. There is very credible archaeological evidence that they have found Peter and Andrew's home. You can look it up for yourself. I won't share all the reasons that they believe this is the actual home. They have built a church over it. And the bottom of the church is a huge glass floor. And they have excavated back to a home that was built in the early first century. And you can see the floor on which Jesus healed and taught and stayed certainly roots it in history. That home is where the following events take place. Let's look at our text. Now what's fascinating about what Mark does, what all the gospel writers do, is they have certain theological purposes for the way that they write their gospel, the way they lay it out. Um, one of the blessings about having four Gospels is that obviously they all have details and information in common and they all have information that is unique to that particular Gospel. And so what you can do, and you could go online, is they have now, scholars have made what we call harmonies of the Gospel. Where they've taken all the events of the Gospels and to the best of our understanding have come up with a list of everything that Jesus said and did that's recorded and it lays it out in chronological fashion. And when you look at all the Gospels, you can get a very full picture of Jesus' ministry over three years. And by doing that, you can also know what Mark is doing in our passage today. Our passage today starts in verse 13 with Jesus appointing the 12 apostles. This is where he gave his Sermon on the Mount, just beside Capernaum. He's appointed his 12 apostles, okay? And we know by reading a harmony of the Gospels that there were some events that came between the end of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20. Again, if you were to read a harmony of the Gospels that lists sequentially all the events of Jesus' life, Things happen in between the appointment of the 12 and when he picks up with Jesus' family in verse 20. But if you didn't know that, you would think that these events happen back to back. They do not happen back to back. Mark wants you to understand them back to back. So what he does is Mark includes the calling of the 12 the appointment of the 12, then he goes immediately to something that happened at Jesus' home base of operation. And then when you get to 320, we've talked about this many times before, Mark engages in what we've called before the Mark and what? You should know this. 
The Mark and Sandwich. That's where Mark introduces story A. Then he completely interrupts it with another story B. And then he comes back and finishes story A. Okay, so you have some bread on the top, some bread on the bottom, some meat in the middle, and they mutually reinforce and interpret each other. So Mark has done something pretty amazing, pretty insightful here when, when, when he shares the appointment of the twelve and then he does his little Mark and sandwich. They are intended to be read together and understood together and Jesus is making a significant point by doing this. Okay, so here we go. How do we understand this? So what you have, so you have the appointment of the 12 in verses 13 through 19. And we're going to come back to that. Then immediately after that, Mark says Jesus went home. He had been out in his Galilean ministry, healing people, preaching, casting out demons. His reputation had exploded. Throngs of people were coming to him. So he starts in Capernaum. Throngs of people come. He's overwhelmed. Then he goes out into Galilee, which is northern Israel. He does all the same things there. He gets overwhelmed there. He comes back here. Now the crowds find him again. He's at home. He's at Peter and Andrew's house. Verse 20, the crowd gathered again. Verse 20 indicates, so that they could not even eat. They were so overwhelmed by the crowds. I mean, we should think about like, you know, when your favorite sports team comes to town and then they're in the arena and they sign some autographs and they just get overwhelmed by people. Or back in the days when Michael Jordan was playing for the Bulls, they had to have layers of security around him because he would be crushed by the crowds. That kind of celebrity status was now happening to Jesus. It's not something he sought out. But when you're healing people, when people's lives are being changed through the power of the gospel, when paralytics are being healed and demons are being cast out, your reputation is going to grow. And so the people are around him. And so the first part of the Mark and Sandwich, the bread, what happens there? His family tries to seize him. They try to stop him from what he's doing, okay? And then that story picks up again in 31 through 35. So they set out to stop him at the beginning. In verses 20 through 21, Jesus' mother and brothers came to seize him, stop him, and take him home. They set out from Nazareth to go to Capernaum. It's about 20 miles away. Then Luke picks that up at the end when they get there. I'm sorry, Mark picks it up at the end. When he gets there, or when, the, when, when Mary and the brothers get there, and they're trying to stop him. And the same thing happens in the middle. The scribes, who are the lawyers of their day, they are sent from Jerusalem to try to indict Jesus for a crime. They're trying to undermine his ministry. They're trying to stop him. So here's the layout in the passage. Jesus appoints his disciples. Then Mark shares an experience where Jesus' blood relatives try to stop him in both sides of the Mark and Sandwich and then in the middle. The scribes try to stop him. Okay, let's look at this a little further. 
rejection by the family of Jesus in verses 20 through 21. Now, this is honestly hard to understand. Admittedly, it is difficult to understand what's going on. Okay, it says, verse 20, then he went home. The crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So go to 21. And when his family heard it, what does the it refer to? What was the family hearing that drew them to Capernaum? That's a good question. What were they hearing? And then it says in verse 21, for they were saying he's out of their mind. Is that they refer to people in the crowd or his own family? Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on trying to figure this out. But that's where the Mark and Sandwich comes in handy. Okay, because in 31 and 32, he's finishing the story. It's Jesus' mothers and brothers. And when they heard it, they pro what that probably indicates is they had heard about his ministry exploding. They had heard about all the people that he was healing. They were, healing about, they were hearing about all the things that he was doing and the exorcisms that he was engaging in. And they had heard that he couldn't even eat. He was so busy. He was so overwhelmed. Now the NAS translates the phrase here, he's out of his mind, translates it a little softer. He's, he's lost his senses. Um, perhaps like he's overwhelmed. Um, perhaps he's close to having some kind of breakdown. So obviously people ask, this seems, or, or, they, or they notice, this seems inconsistent with Mary. Does it, seems like, does it seem like Mary would have thought of Jesus, he's out of his mind? That seems unlikely. It seems much more likely of his brothers. If you read John chapter 7, John tells you that the brothers of Jesus were certainly not believers. John says that in an editorial comment, that his brothers did not believe. And they, in fact, were encouraging Jesus to go to Jerusalem to do some of these glorious things that he'd done elsewhere. In other words, why don't you go do this in a more public setting? And then the world will know who you are. Like, they didn't believe that he could do that. And they were tired of it. And perhaps his brothers were embarrassed at what was happening to the family name. Mary, I think, was probably concerned about Jesus. He hadn't been eating. He was completely overwhelmed. Perhaps he was emotionally exhausted. So the family of Jesus, Jesus' mother and his brothers, go, the text says, to seize him. That's the same Greek work that's used later um, when the uh, arresting authorities came to take Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They came to seize him. The family of Jesus was coming to stop him. His brothers were probably embarrassed. His mother was probably concerned about him. They were there to seize him and stop him and take him home. Okay? That's exactly what happens to the scribes who Mark picks up you know, maybe at another occasion, okay, when the scribes were opposing Jesus. Let's look at the text. Verse 
So in verses 20 and 21, the blood relatives of Jesus set out to seize him and stop him. They thought perhaps he was close to a breakdown or whatever. Then verses 22 through 30. Now we have the scribes who've come down from Jerusalem to effectively do the same thing. To stop him. You know, not for his own good, not to protect him, not to help him, but to shut him down. Who are the scribes? So we've talked about Nicodemus as a Pharisee. We've talked about Samaritans, what they're like. Who are the scribes? The scribes, no offense attended, Stephen, these were the attorneys, these were the lawyers of their day. And so the Pharisees were trying to find a way to undermine and stop the ministry of Jesus. They had heard about all these things. They had heard about the healings and all the things that were happening. And the text indicates the scribes came down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a mountain. And anybody who comes from Jerusalem, you come down, okay, to wherever you're going. And so the Pharisees, the religious rulers, had dispatched the finest attorneys of their time to try to find something, some kind of crime that they could connect Jesus with. Now notice what's happening. What's agreed upon here? Amazing things are happening. Demons are being cast out of people. People are being healed. Isn't it amazing that the scribes don't even contest that? They agree that those kinds of things are happening. Okay, because it was indisputable what was happening here. The miraculous things that were going on. So what they try to do is they try to pin him with a crime saying that what he's doing is satanic. Okay, that he's casting out these demons through the authority and by the possession of Satan. So look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. That was an Old Testament name for Satan. He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And so by doing that, they're trying to stop him, undermine him, cease what he's doing. Okay? Jesus responds. And he called them to him and said to them in parables. He's, he's veiling his teaching here. He tells two parables that make a mockery of their accusation. And he just asks them very simply, How can Satan cast out Satan? Verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Verse 25. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand. Then verse 26. Here's what he means. If Satan has risen against himself, if I'm possessed by Satan and I'm casting out demons, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. In other words, this accusation is absurd on its face. I'm possessed by Satan trying to destroy Satan. That makes no sense whatsoever. Then verse 27, we get to the meat. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds 
the strong man. I'm not in league with the strong man. I am vanquishing the strong man. Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Okay? He's saying, I'm not in league with Satan. I am vanquishing Satan. I am plundering his house. So all of these exorcisms is an expression of Jesus plundering the house of Satan. Jesus came to deliver people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. And that's what he's doing. Verse 27 is an indicator that Jesus is more powerful than Satan. He is defeating Satan. And no one can bind him. And that's the key to the Mark and Sandwich. His family has come in verses 20 and 21. And they're trying to seize him and stop him and bind him. And then Jesus tells a parable that the scribes, they've come to stop me and bind me and no one can bind me. Because I am the Messiah of the living God and I am pillaging the house of the strong man. No one can stop me in my mission. What's the mission? That's the key to all this. What's the mission? Look at verses 13 through 19. What does Jesus do in 13 through 19? That's the context of all of this. Jesus is calling the new Israel. How many apostles are there that he appoints? Twelve. In the Old Testament, you had the twelve tribes of Israel that formed the nation. Now Jesus is calling out a new Israel. There is a new family of God. There's a new family of God that's not defined by blood. It's not Jesus's mother or brothers or sisters. And it's not his national brothers and sisters. That's represented by the scribes. Who comprises the new Israel according to this? It's the people that Jesus is calling out of the kingdom of darkness and delivering them to the kingdom of light. It's not blood relatives. It's not your fellow citizens. It's the people of God who do the will of God. Look at the end. Verse 31. His mothers and his brothers came. They set out in verse 20 to get there. They've arrived by verse 31. His mother and brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him. You know they're like bring him out. We're going to take him home. Verse 32. A crowd was sitting around him. Who's the crowd? These are believers. These are people that are looking to Jesus as the Messiah. These are people of which the 12 disciples are comprised of as well. They weren't there to oppose him. They were there to learn from him and be discipled by him. Verse 32. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Is that not genius? It's not his blood family. It's not his ethnic brothers and sisters. It's the people 
who love Jesus, who try to live according to the will of God, that's what comprises the new family. That, was, that would be brand new in their concept. There was nothing closer than your blood nuclear family in that context. There was nothing closer to you than fellow Israelites in this nation. And now in this new covenant, this new order of things, your truest family are other followers of Jesus Christ. Obviously, there are so many applications to our context. In this first century context, to trust in Jesus, it could cost you your family. You know, there were many people in first century Israel, after trusting Jesus, they were excommunicated. They were expelled from their family. And so the church really was the only family they would have. In our day and age, that's not so much the case. We can trust in the Lord Jesus and still honor the fifth commandment and honor our family and love our family but what it is saying is that for those who love Jesus, who trust in him, there is a new family of which you are a part. Yes, we always have connections to our parents and our brothers and sisters and our children. They are family. But what Jesus is saying is, believe it or not, and this, this can be hard to understand and wrap your hearts and minds around, the church of Jesus Christ can and should be an even closer family. We are, friends, the fulfillment of Jesus' parable. We are the new Israel. Those of you on your right and your left, this is an expression of the new Israel, the new community of God. We all have family that we love, blood relatives, that we would give our lives for and that's extremely important but there should be a depth of relationship with the other people in this room that we don't share with the world you know for our, our young students who are in high school and college is oftentimes the first opportunity that young people have to make new friends and to enjoy new community that in a sense hasn't been chosen for you by your parents, by the school you go to or the church you go to. And oftentimes it's in college when you can like experience this in ways that you never had before. You're drawn to people because of their love for Jesus Christ. You have a special connection to them because of their heart for the gospel. Jesus is asking us, is this true of you? Are your soulmates in this world other Christians? We love our family. We honor the fifth commandment. But this is our family. And do we operate on that basis? Do you look forward to getting to know new people at Providence Presbyterian Church, do you recognize this as your people? That's what should be happening here. It's wonderful to have relationships, Christian relationships, out in the world, but God intended His church to be a visible, tangible expression of the new family of God 
composed in Christ. That is one of my deepest prayers for this church. That we would look forward to coming on Sunday morning. Not to just sing and give praise to God. Of course that's important. It's so important. I hear so many comments from you about how much you benefit and are blessed by taking the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Is there anything better? No, it's wonderful. We love hearing the word preached and taught. We all delight in that and relish in that. But in that same category is we should love and be excited about fellowshipping with the Lord's people. When I see Kathy Parker, I see a sister in Christ that I would not have known if the Lord would not have brought me to himself in college. Will Thomas, I would not know if the Lord Jesus Christ had not brought you into my life. I would have never met you. Haziel Cantu would have never met him if I wasn't a Christian. I view Haziel as close or closer than any members of my family because of Jesus. Friends, that's what this church should be. And that's an important dynamic of the new community in Christ Jesus. May the Lord our God give us the blessing of experiencing what it means to be a part of this new community. May we view each other through this lens. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and praise you for all the benefits and blessings of being part of the new covenant, to hear the preaching of the word, to enjoy the sacraments, to give you all glory, honor, and praise through singing and through our confessions. Lord, we thank you for the privilege, though, of enjoying Christian friendship and fellowship in the context of your church. Father, I pray that we would look around and see that this is our family. This is our mother and our brothers and our fathers and our sisters. Our true family. Lord, may we not be a people that, that just show up at 1010 and leave at 1145 and not connect with the church the rest of the week. The degree to which that is true here, Father, help us to repent of that. Help us to recognize that this is the way that you provide for us in terms of our spiritual family of God. Give us gospel eyes to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Give us the grace to reach out to each other and get to know each other and to live life together. Father, may we be an expression of this new community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.